Let's open up now to the book of 1 John. We are finishing 1 John today. Today is our 19th week in the book of 1 John. Uh, next week, we will start the book of Revelation, as you know, and I guarantee it will take a lot longer than 19 weeks. You know, it took us three years to do the book of Ephesians. So can you imagine Revelation? <laughs> Ephesians is six chapters and fairly straightforward. Revelation, who knows? And 22 chapters of that baby. So I actually have a plan. We'll, we'll move through it fairly quickly. But. Today we finish the book of 1 John. And uh, the title of this message, somewhat oddly, is what we know and maybe don't know at the end of 1 John. What we know and maybe don't know at the, first, uh, at the end of 1 John. You'll probably get that when we read the text. We're starting in verse 16 and going to the end of the book. Verse 16, 1 John chapter 5 says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. But there is a sin leading to death, and I do not say that you should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, that you would give us understanding of your word today. I'm not sure that we're going to get it all. I don't quite understand it all, but there is much here that we can understand. And we just thank you for the book of 1 John and the way that it has spoke to us and challenged us and caused us to grow cause us to repent, cause us to rethink and to seek you and to want to live our lives for your glory. And so, Lord, we just pray at the end that these last 19 weeks in your word together have not been wasted. We trust that your word will not return void, but it will accomplish a good and fruitful work in us for your glory, Lord. And so remind us of those things today. Encourage us, please, God, give us grace to obey you. Give us grace and unction to follow you, to live our lives for your glory and your will and not our own. Give us understanding in your word now. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, last week, you may remember the sermon we talked about praying God's will from the previous couple of verses, and that was a really good sermon. You should get, that was a joke. <laughs> You should get that sermon online if you weren't here last week. It was helpful to me as we were studying and preparing to talk about praying God's will and the different and unexpected ways in which God sometimes answers our prayers and the fact that he always answers the prayers of his children. And what John is doing in this verse now, verse 16 before us, this enigmatic, somewhat strange verse, is he's trying to give a case study, an illustration of praying God's will right? 
He said in the previous verses, verse 14 and 15, and this is a confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. And now he gives an illustration of praying God's will and knowing when something isn't God's will. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, sinning, a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will for him give life to those who commit a sin not leading to death. So someone in the church, your brother, your sister, is in rebellion to God, they're sinning, they've fallen into some wrong behavior, we ought to pray for them. And that's according to God's will. And God will, God will hear those prayers and answer those prayers and bring them back into walking in the light, in the way of life, following Jesus, who is the way, the life, and the truth. Praying God's will, that's a prayer according to God's will. That's pretty straightforward. And we have confidence in that. We'll talk about how important that is in a few minutes. But then in verse 16, it says this strange thing. There is a sin leading to death, and I'm not saying you should pray for this. Okay, what does that mean? Your brother or your sister is sinning? Pray for him. That's excellent. There's a certain sin where you're like, not even praying for you, dude. (laughs) What is that? And when is that? Well, that's hard to say. Have you ever lost your keys to get in your front door, to get in your car? Anybody ever lost a key here? Who's ever lost a key? Yeah, yeah. I have a gun safe at home and I lost the keys to it. That's not helpful at all. And when when you've lost the keys to something... (laughs) You can't get in. Like, you lost the keys, right? You're like, oh, gosh, there's nothing I can do. I, I, I can't get in. I, I lost the keys. One commentator said when he was speaking about this verse, he said, you know, what does this verse mean? He says, gosh, really? I think we've lost the keys to this verse. I, I just think we, we, can't, we can't get into it. It's obvious that his original audience understood what he meant, right? He wouldn't use an illustration that was obscure to them. Nobody does that. Right? Nobody, when wanting to communicate to a certain audience, uses some super abstract, obscure, enigmatic illustration that they're not going to get. So they clearly got it. When he's like, ah, there's a sin leading to death. Don't pray for that guy. They're like, yeah, totes. Get that. No problem. We, <laughs> I have a teenage son. We, we for some reason, have, have lost the keys. 2,000 years later, we maybe are not exactly sure. There are some suggestions. You may think you know the answer, and there are some suggestions. So here are a few that have been suggested, are suggested by members of the church often. First one is this. Maybe John is referring to heinous sins or the idea of mortal sins. Mortal sins is something kind of created by the Roman Catholic Church. They distinguish between venial sins, which are minor transgressions, which can be excused or overlooked, and mortal sins, which are serious transgressions that deprive the soul of saving grace. The Roman Catholic belief is that if one commits a mortal sin and doesn't have a chance to formally confess that before death, then they will be damned. But the Reformation largely rejected that idea and and put forward the idea from Scripture that our forgiveness is full and complete in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So I don't know about that mortal sin idea, but what about heinous sins? Maybe the sin leading to death is a heinous sin, like 
Murder. Doesn't get much worse than that, does it? But what about Paul? Paul was a murderer of Christians who was forgiven and became Paul the apostle. What about David who added murder to his adultery? And yet David appeared to be forgiven by the Lord. So I don't know about the idea of heinous or mortal sin being the sin that leads to death. There's another idea. Maybe John is talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, also known as the unpardonable sin. You remember in Mark chapter 3, Jesus had been casting out demons and delivering people. And the Pharisees came along and said, he casts out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus said, well, first of all, that's stupid, man. A house divided against itself does not fall. And I'll tell you what, you can, make, you can commit any sin against me and it will be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that is an eternal sin that will not be forgiven. And there's lots of discussion about what is blasphemy, the Holy Spirit, and the unpardonable sin. But it seems to me that it is refusing, negating, rejecting the Holy Spirit's witness about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. Now, the implications, obviously, are if you reject the Holy Spirit's witness about Jesus Christ, then you can't be saved, right? So it seems that the unpardonable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is only committed by non-believers. They've rejected the work and the identity of Jesus Christ as testified to by the Holy Spirit. And the reason why this may not be the answer for the text is because John seems to be speaking to believers. He says, if you see a brother sinning, but depending on your interpretation of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it seems to be a sin for non-believers. Who is John referring to in verse 16? Hard to say. There's a third option that maybe John is referring to apostasy. Someone who was truly saved and then later on fell away from the faith, ended up rejecting Jesus and so is no longer saved. Well, there's tremendous problems with that. If that is even possible, depends upon your theological and soteriological perspective. Oh no, big words. <laughs> Soteriology, the study of how we are saved. So if you're a Calvinist, you would say, no, no, no. Perseverance of the saints. You cannot commit apostasy if you're a true believer. Once saved, always saved. On the other end of the spectrum, you might say the opposite. So maybe John is talking about apostasy, but that's really debatable. Depends on our theological, soteriological perspectives. Can a true believer lose their faith and apostatize? And were the opponents that John is talking about in 1 John believers or apostates? Hard to know from the text. There's not a lot of clues in the text. Then there's a fourth suggestion. Maybe John is referring to physical death as discipline from the Lord. Remember that horrible chapter, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira? In the early church, Ananias and Sapphira wanted to jump on the bandwagon of everybody in the early church who was selling their stuff and bringing all of the money, all the proceeds to a common fund, laying it at the feet of the apostles, and they were distributing it to those in need. And Ananias and Sapphira had some land, and they sold it, and they went to Peter and said, we're bringing you all the dough. But they kept back some of the dough for themselves, which they totally could have done, no problem. They could have said, hey, Pete, you know what? We're going to bring you some of the dough. Stoked to do that, giving unto the Lord joyously. We're keeping some of the dough. That's perfectly legit. But they lied about it. And it says in the text, they lied to the Holy Spirit. 
and God killed them. I don't know, that's bad. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Paul is writing because they weren't taking communion correctly. Some of them were just coming to the Lord's Supper and just feasting and drinking wine before the people were there and they weren't examining themselves and dealing with it reverently and rightly. And Paul said to the church in Corinth, some of you are sick and some of you are dead because you're taking communion wrong. Discipline, judgment from the Lord. Maybe... That's what's being referred to. But it still doesn't tell us what the sin is. There's there's no clues in the text. And there is precedent for people blowing it so bad where God says, don't even pray for these guys anymore. Remember Jeremiah? Look at those references to Jeremiah. In several chapters, God says to Jeremiah, don't even pray for the southern kingdom of Judah anymore, Jeremiah. I don't even want to hear your prayers for these guys. They're blowing it so hard. So there is some precedent for that. So which is it? Is John referring to heinous or mortal sin? Is John referring to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Is he referring to apostasy or physical death as discipline from the Lord? Well, I don't think it's the first one. We don't have those scriptural divisions created by the Roman Catholic Church and certainly murder is not an unpardonable sin. Verse 17 says, all unrighteousness is sin. And it's probably not number two. Because again, the text is about believers. And it seems that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is refusing to believe in Jesus Christ. It may refer to number three, but there's that whole debate again about whether or not one can lose their salvation and the nature of salvation. Number four seems plausible then. But I don't think it's number four. Because I don't think John is talking about physical life and physical death in the text. All through the book, he's talking about life in Christ, eternal life. I think he's talking about eternal matters here. So, Pastor Britt, we know that you know the answer. You would not leave us hanging in that way. Of course I do not know the answer. I don't know. And it's okay sometimes to not know, right? Right? It's okay to say, I I don't know. I've presented to you the major options that the church has uh, believed and and looked at and considered over the time. I, I, I don't know exactly what that text means. Here's what we do know. We do know that John there is merely providing an illustration about praying according to God's will. And so in doing that, as I said, he would be invoking something that was clear to them. The key has been lost to us. But what still comes through the text for us is the general tone of what John is saying. And he's saying it all throughout the book of 1 John. He's saying this, church, sin is serious. Sin is not to be taken lightly. Sin is not to be trifled with. Sin is not to be just tolerated. Sin is not to be expected. Something altogether different is to be expected in the church. John is saying that sin is serious and that the call on the believer is to confess sin, 
Not hide sin, not deny sin, not continue in sin, but to confess sin, he's been saying. The call on the believer is to repent of sin. Not try to figure out ways to keep moving forward in sin, but to repent of it. The call on the believer is to forsake sin. Not make excuses for it, not justify it, not rationalize it, not reposition it. The call on the believer, the thrust of the text, is that we're to forsake it. And what the book has been saying all along, and the verse would, would, would push us toward this as well, is that we are to forsake sin and pursue righteousness. That's what we have been getting in 1 John. And I pray that it is having a true effect in our lives. The call on the Christian is to forsake sin, to confess it, to repent of it, and to pursue righteousness. And the text would also bring this to mind. That sin has grave consequences. Paul wrote to the church in Galatians, said, don't be deceived. You reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, the sinful things of the sinful nature, if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap those sorts of things. If you sow to the Spirit, obeying Jesus, walking in the Spirit, you're going to reap those sorts of things. Man, nothing has become more real to me in the last year and in the last 19 weeks of studying the book of 1 John. You reap what you sow. Sin has consequences. And though we're not sure what it is, John is referring to something that is deadly in nature. And I don't know what it is. And that's a little disconcerting. And that makes us a little comfortable. I don't know what it is, but I do know what to do. I do know that in light of that, then we ought to call each other to living in holy fear before a holy God. Let's make it a non-issue. The sin that leads to death, let's make it a non-issue by forsaking sin, confessing sin, repenting of sin, and heading in the opposite direction. Make sense? And we can also glean this from the text, though we don't know the exact meaning. We can glean this. And this, is, this is potent. This is good. That as believers, we are to take loving responsibility for one another's spiritual well-being. Let's return to the first part of verse 16 where he says, if you see a brother sinning, pray for him and God will answer that prayer. So when we see each other blow it, and do we? Yes, we do, unless you're sneaky, sneaky and very good at hiding it. When we see each other blowing it, sinning, we're to pray for one another. Praying for someone else is called intercessory prayer. You're interceding. We could take this text as a call to intercessory prayer in the church. You see someone sinning, pray for them. Here's something we're thinking about. How does that compare to the reactions that we usually have when we see our Christian brothers and sisters sinning? Is our first reaction intercessory prayer? Or is it condemnation? Or is it gossip? What is it? How does the call to pray for those of us who are caught in sin, how is that different from how we normally deal with one another? That's, that's been profound to me. You know what this is? This is how we invite God into broken, rebellious places. It's through prayer. 
The way that we lock God out of it is through condemnation, judgment, gossip, rejection. It's not what we want to do in the midst of our sin. We want to say, God, come, come help. Come help us as a church. Come help us as a body. We don't want to sit around and grumble about their sins. We want to pray for them. That God would restore them and bring them to repentance and walking in the light as he's done for us so many times. That's inviting God into the process and that works. And so I think we could glean from the text that intercessory prayer for those who are struggling with sin within the church ought to be normative. It ought to be what we do. Don't slide gossip in there. Oh, hey, did you, did you, did you hear about Brett? You can, you can pray to the Lord yourself, right? Let's begin to pray for one another. It's, it's, it should be normative and it's healing. Look at James chapter five, verse 16. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person and we're only righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ and thus we are righteous in him has great power and produces wonderful results. John is saying that is praying according to God's will. God loves to restore. He loves to save sinners. And then when his children are faltering, he loves to restore them and bring them back to walking in obedience. And so pray for each other. There's healing in that. And that is praying according to God's will. will, And that is powerful and effective. That much we know. We may not know what a sin leading to death means, but as we continue in the text, what we do know, I think, is enough to keep us away from the danger of such sin. Here's what we do know now. Let's leave what we don't know and move to what we do know in the text. Verse 18 says, We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. What do we know? We know that no one born of God sins. Now, 1 John has said that over and over again. What what does he mean by that? We know what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that Christians won't sin. He's already said that we will. Look at chapter 1 very quickly. Turn back a couple pages. Starting at verse 8. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's writing to Christians here. If we confess our sins, okay, instead of saying we don't have sin, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Next breath, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. That is a goal. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins. So we know, he says, that no one born of God, no one who has been born again, through faith and repentance, repenting of their sins and putting their faith in Jesus Christ, sins. Ah, he already said that we're going to sin. This is just one of those rare moments where the key, we have the key. We have the llaves, that's Spanish for key. The key is in the Greek language. That verb sin 
is in the present tense and the active voice. It's the idea of continuing in sin. The, the NIV communicates it well. The NIV says, oh, we don't have that? Okay, my bad. And the NIV says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. That is truly the idea. New Living Translation says, we know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning. It's very clear from the book of 1 John that he's not saying a Christian will never sin again. No, duh. He is saying right here, here's what we know at the end of the book. We know that those who have been born of God do not intend to make a practice of sin, do not intend to continue in sin. Again, instead of practicing, instead of continuing, the call on the Christian is forsaking confessing, repenting. That's what he's saying. We know. Continuing in rebellion is not what a Christian does because we have been born again. We have a new nature that is alive to God and dead to sin. And the power of sin has been broken in our lives. Let's just read a bit of that from the book of Romans. Go to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read it from uh, my New Living Translation for us today because I think it communicates well. It's a a wordy passage, and in wordy passages, the NASB can be weighty, but the NLT helps in those sort of passages. So Romans chapter 5, speaking of our new nature... And what God has done with sin for us, breaking its power, the opportunity to not have to live in sin anymore. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 20, says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they are. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing, justification with God, and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well then, chapter 6, verse 1, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Verse 5. So we have been united with Christ in his death. We will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. Someone say amen. Amen. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Someone say thank you, Jesus. And since we died with Christ, verse 8, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also 
should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. So verse 12 tells us what to do about sin. Do not let, there is a battle, the old nature and the new nature, but here's what we do. Do not let sin control the way that you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. For you are no longer under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Someone say, hooray. Hooray. Verse 15. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean that we can go on sinning? Of course not. Verse 16. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God. Once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin and you have become slaves to righteous living. That is why John says, we know, we know that no one born of God, born, of get, born again, dead to sin, alive to God, new nature, continues in sin, practices sin, rather we forsake sin, we confess sin, we repent of sin. We know that this is the Christian life, John is saying. And after his epistle, after he wrote to them, that is abundantly clear. And then he gives us abundant joy. He says in the next part of verse 18, he who was born of God keeps him. Speaking of Jesus. No one born of God continues to sin. And then speaking of Jesus, he who was born of God, the only begotten son, keeps him. We're not left to ourselves to muster up the strength, to try to do better, to try to be better, to try again, to put safeguards in place. We are kept by the power of Jesus Christ. There is power available for righteous living. It comes down to our choices, doesn't it? You can choose to obey sin. You can choose that. Or you can choose to obey Christ, which is life. And the text tells us that Christ is holding on to us. The New Living Translation says, and Jesus holds us securely. And the last part of that verse says, in order to keep us from the evil one, that he cannot touch us. There's no doubt that there is a battle. There is no doubt that Satan is endeavoring to tempt us, that he came to kill and steal and destroy. But for the Christian There is the promise of the protective power of God in Christ. So there is the hope of truly living a better, obedient, faithful, and fruitful life. John says, we know that Christians don't just continue in sin. We are held securely by Jesus 
And he keeps us daily from the power of the tempter. This we know. Amen? Now we know that because of the nature of salvation. Verse 19 makes us clear and tells us what we also know. Verse 19 says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This we also know by the nature of salvation. We know that we are of God. Prior to being saved, we were of the world. We were even, Scripture says, of the devil. Sons of disobedience. Sons of wrath, the Scripture says. Contrary to God. Now, through faith and repentance, we know that we are of God. We've been born from above. But remember what 1 John has been telling us, and I want us to be left with this, is that we don't only know this according to the nature of salvation, but John is telling the Christian, we ought to know this evidentially. There ought to be evidence in the life of the believer that we belong to God, that we are of God. And remember, he's given us three evidences throughout the book. He's given us the doctrinal test, the behavioral test, and the brotherly love test. He says, if you're truly in the faith, you're going to get the right Jesus. There's a lot of wrong Jesuses. No right Jesus, no salvation. He says, if you're truly in the faith, you're going to grow in righteousness. You're going to walk in the light. You're going to pursue righteousness. And if you're truly in the faith, as difficult as it can be, you're going to love one another as Christian brothers and sisters. And the book of John is hard, hard, hard. Why? Because it tells us to stop talking about our faith and start living our faith. It says, yes, 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 get Jesus right. But show me that you got Jesus right. Show me the evidence in the way that you walk, in the way that you live. This is a call out of sloppy living. This is a call into Christ-honoring, obedient living. What we know will keep us far away from having to worry about what we don't know. And this is the evidence that we belong to God. We don't pursue sin, we repent of sin. We pursue right living, we walk in the light. So verses 19 and 18 together are saying, we know that we belong to God because we do not continue to sin. John says, we know that. This is how we know, we're Christians. We don't practice it, we don't continue it, we forsake it, we repent of it. We will do it, but we have an advocate. And we go to him continually. John says, we know this. The question that I want to ask is, do you know this? Take it out of the we. Let's bring it down to ourselves. Am I getting this? Am I practicing a lifestyle of confession, repentance, forsaking sin, and pursuing righteousness? Don't let it be we. Let's talk about you. Remember, we talked about the fact a few weeks ago that sanctification is both a moment and a lifetime. It is both an event and a process. In a moment when we put our faith in Jesus, we are sanctified in the sense that we are set apart to him as his holy one, his saints. We had a change in core identity. But we continue to sin. So we have a job description, sinner. Core identity, saint. Job description, sinner. So what do we do? We forsake sin. We want to live into our core identity. The power of sin has been broken in our lives. And so we should always be in the process 
of transformed progression, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And if, if there's none of that, we've we got to look real hard and say, have I ever been born again? Honestly, no. If there is no transformation in your life, no sanctification, no forsaking of sin, no growth in holiness, if you're living the same way now that you were 20 years ago or two years ago, you must ask yourself, have I truly been born again? Because Jesus said there are many who will think themselves to be born again and are not. And John, from a place of love, is trying to impress this upon us. If what we read in Romans 5 and 6 is true of you, it's going to be evidential. That cannot happen and nothing ever changes. There will be struggles. There will be low points. There will be great failures. There will be valleys. But there should be a general trajectory of pursuing Jesus and obeying him. If not, maybe you've never been born again. You need to be born again. You need to confess Christ as Lord and repent of your sins and put your faith in him. Maybe you're just walking in rebellion. And you really are born again, but it's really hard for you to identify some clear sanctification. It's really hard for you to identify that Holy Spirit work of life transformation. If so, man, forsake sin and pursue Jesus. We know. John is saying this is what we know. And John, the book of 1 John, wants us to be uncomfortable. It really does. It wants us to be uncomfortable with our sin. It wants us to be very confident in the identity of Jesus Christ who forgives sins. But it wants, to be un- it wants us to be uncomfortable with our lax view of sin. John likes to draw a line in the sand. John says that there are not 50 shades of gray. There is black and white. There is dark and light. And culture and us as it influences us is always looking for the gray matter and the gray area. What can I get away with? And who really knows? And maybe, and they don't know. And well, and John says, you know what? That's not the way to live. That's not the way to follow Jesus. The way to follow Jesus is to walk in the light. Chapter one again. Verse six, he says, if we say that we have fellowship with Jesus and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. Chapter two, verse four, the one who says, I've come to know Jesus and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him, Jesus, ought to himself walk in the same manner that he walked. That's the call of First John. And verse 20 tells us that we know one more thing. Chapter 5, verse 20 says, we know that the Son of God has come. Back to that doctrinal thing people that he were addressing in the letter sometimes were getting the identity of Jesus wrong. He says, we know that the Son of God has come in the flesh, Jesus Christ. That has been the concern of the whole book. And he has given us understanding, it says in verse 20. Why? Again in verse 20, in order that we might know him. 
We know that the Son of God has come. We know that he has given us understanding, and we know why. So that we can know Jesus. Don't confuse the issue. The main issue is not sin. The main issue is Jesus and knowing him. The goal is not merely to sin less for the sake of sinning less. The goal is to be more intimate, near, obedient to Jesus. Sin gets in the way of that. So we don't hide it. We don't rationalize it. We don't make it gray. We forsake it, confess it, repent of it, and pursue Jesus. Because the whole goal of the gospel is that we might know him. What we gain most in the gospel is God himself. Christ died. The Holy One for the ungodly once and for all to bring us to God. The goal of the whole thing is knowing God in Christ Jesus, enjoying him and obeying him. Sin is very much involved in that. Sin is not the main issue. Jesus is the main issue. And Jesus is the one who died on the cross in our place for our sins. That we might die to the power of sin and have brand new life. And so walk in the light. That means to walk with Jesus and experience something more wonderful. So John is saying, we know that we have a different view of sin. We know that we are of God. We know that the Son of God has come, that we might be brought to him. And all this stands in stark contrast to the world. He says in verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And then he says at the end of verse 20 about Jesus, Jesus is true. We are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and the eternal life. Brothers and sisters, we we live in an age of, of muddied theological waters. We really do. We live in a little town with all sorts of opposing doctrines and theologies and ideas about Jesus. Our neighbors are Jehovah's Witnesses. We've got the wrong Jesus. We need to live in such a way that reveals to them who Christ truly is. Our next doors are Mormons. Next door neighbors, excuse me, they've, they've got the wrong Jesus. Our coworkers are involved in the New Age movement. It's the wrong Jesus. Our world is being affected by radical Islam. It's the wrong Jesus. Our family members, our Christian scientists, Sarong Jesus. John has been telling us that Jesus is the only true Savior of the world, the one true God, the only way to eternal life. And brothers and sisters, this is worth contending for. And this is worth living for. Living for. And giving your life for. This is worth living for that people would know Jesus. This is worth giving your life for. What are the plans for your life? Is it better than making Jesus known? What are your career aspirations? Are they worth more than exposing the nations to Jesus? 
What are your financial goals? Are they more important than living in a way that is faithful so that the world might see Jesus' saving and transforming power? This is worth living for and giving your life for. What are you going to do with your life that's better than obeying and telling the world about Jesus? Nothing. Don't waste your life. John is saying at the end of the letter, and so he says in verse 21, little children, guard yourself from idols, meaning lesser things. Stop living for lesser things. Jesus is the one true God. Eternal life. So live for him. Don't live for lesser things. Don't live for idols or other ideologies. Don't live for power. Don't live for position. Don't live for possessions. Don't live for influence. Don't live for reputation. Don't live for accumulation. Live for Jesus. Live for Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. Little children, keep yourself from lesser things. This is what we know. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for what you revealed to us through the book of 1 John. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to live faithful and fruitful lives. And we just ask now for the power and the unction of the Holy Spirit to do so. God, help us where we're living for lesser things idols. Help us where we're continuing in disobedience, rebellion. Help us where we're stuck and we're struggling. Help us to be intercessors for one another. Help us to forsake sin and pursue righteousness for your glory. Help us, Lord. For your glory, help us, Lord.